This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the role of women in the Civil War. It's taught by former Purdue University and current University of Virginia professor Caroline Janney. This episode was recorded in 2010. So today we are going to be talking about women in the Civil War. And in 1866, historian Frank Moore wrote that, quote, the story of the war will never be fully or fairly written if the achievements of women in it are untold. Of the 31 million Americans who were living during the Civil War, and keep in mind that the Civil War was between April of 1861 and April of 1865, of the 31 million Americans, 15 million of those were women. So it seems only natural that we examine how the war affected them and conversely, how they affected the war. So today we're going to talk about women, Northern women, Southern women, Union women, Confederate women, black women and white women and how they experienced the war. I want you to keep in mind some of the comparisons that we're going to be making. I want you to think about what they shared in common and the ways in which their experiences diverged. So let's start on the northern home front. We're going to look at the home fronts first, and then we'll switch to the battlefront. We'll start with the northern home front. Now, how many of you read uh, Little Women? If you've read Little Women. Okay, that gives you a pretty good idea. We'll talk a little bit about Louisa May Alcott in a few minutes, about the experience of northern women on the home front. For the majority of northern women, the war was not literally at their doorsteps. But of course, their lives were altered by the conflict. Keep in mind that their experiences would differ based on where they lived, if they lived in Massachusetts as opposed to Indiana, by the class, by their income, all of these things, whether or not their husbands or sons or brothers fought in the war, all of these would shape their wartime experiences. But we're going to start with benevolent societies. Because in April 1861, when the war began, there was tremendous enthusiasm to support the troops. People were worried about the conditions of soldiers. They were worried about whether or not they'd have enough clothing, enough food. Would they have enough Bibles to read in camp? And just as women had joined benevolent organizations in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, now women flocked to benevolent societies, to soldiers' aid societies, as they were called, or sometimes simply ladies' aid societies, to support the war. Here you can see an image of some women from Pennsylvania who are sewing a flag. This is one of the common things that happened, and we'll, we'll talk about how this also happened in the Confederacy in the same years, the same time. But a lot of women would rush together and uh, sew flags for their regimental units that were forming in their towns. As many as 20,000 of these ladies' soldiers' aid societies formed, and that, that 20,000 includes both societies in the North and the South. But they didn't just sew flags. They also, especially in the North, were concerned about making sure that the troops had enough provisions. So they started collecting bandages or sending foods and jellies and things of that nature to the front lines. Well, so many women are doing this, thousands upon thousands of women are doing this, so it becomes what we might call benevolent chaos. There was just too much stuff coming in. Food was rotting. It was becoming a problem. It was spoiling. And so they needed some sort of organization. They needed some sort of group, some sort of committee 
that would organize all of this. Well, early in 1861, this happens pretty quickly in the war, the United States Sanitary Commission formed. The United States Sanitary Commission. Its job was to assist the government in caring for sick and wounded soldiers. Now, it was organized primarily by clergymen, by business leaders, by civic leaders. So it's organized by men, but thousands and thousands of upper and middle class northern women joined the effort. So what does the United States Sanitary Commission do? Well, it does things like makes bandages, rolling bandages to send to the wounded soldiers, collecting medical supplies, collecting food. They issued instructions on how these things should be done. Let me read you just a little bit from the USSC's report in October of 1861. These are instructions that they would send out to every local community. Every woman in the country can, at the least, knit a pair of woolen stockings, or if not, can purchase them. In each town, let there be a concerted, concerted effort on this subject, taking care that three or four sizes are provided, making sure that you provide socks in various sizes. They would go on to talk about delicacies for the sick, things such as arrowroot, cornstarch, cocoa, condensed milk, and nicely dried fruit can be advantageously distributed by the commission. They went on to give packing instructions for jellies. It seemed that jellies in particular would shatter in the containers as they were sent, and they were ruining all sorts of other uh, goods that were being sent. So the USSC is in charge of organizing all of this. It becomes an umbrella organization for other ladies' aid societies. They did things like organize fairs, the great sanitary fairs or bazaars. Here's an image from Chicago in 1863. These fairs raised millions of dollars. Another image from 1864 in Philadelphia. Millions of dollars to purchase medical supplies, blankets, ambulances. They even raised enough money to purchase hospital boats that were used in the Western theater during the war where patients could be brought aboard the hospital boats. So in many ways, the USSC served as not only an organizing uh, group, but also as a watchdog, making sure that hospitals were sanitary places. Now, there was another organization that formed at the same time. This was the United States Christian Commission. Again, another umbrella-type organization. As opposed to the Sanitary Commission that was concerned about people's bodies, the Christian Commission was concerned about their souls. So they did things like distribute Bibles, prayer books, hymnals, religious tracts, things that would make a soldier's life more comfortable, more uplifting. They encouraged soldiers to write home, to stay in touch with their family. They also discouraged them from doing some things that they considered immoral, such as drinking or gambling in camp. Card playing was a, a big a big thing to do if you were a soldier in camp. So was drinking, for that matter. And the Christian Commission, these are many women who were already involved in the temperance movement and other benevolent societies prior to the war, are concerned about men's souls. They're worried about their moral condition. So again, we have women in both of these organizations who are key players. They don't hold the top positions of leadership. Those are reserved for men. But thousands and thousands of middle and upper class women were part of this movement. And in so, 
they would gain experience, crucial organizing experience that would lead them into other reform efforts after the war, uh, some of them even into the suffrage movement. What about other ways in which the war affected northern women? Well, one of those ways was in employment. And during the course of the war, more than 100,000 new jobs were created for northern women during the war. And keep in mind that the type of work that these women did, type of work that was available to them, varied by class. So let's start with the government girls. Because during the war, women joined the federal bureaucracy as what were called government girls in Washington, D.C. Now, some women had worked for the federal government. Some women, a few, had worked in the patent office during the 1850s. But during the war, hundreds more were hired. Uh, the Treasury Department, in particular, hired uh, more than 400 women by the end of 1865. And it was the job of these women to cut bills, to sign them. It was seen as something that was appropriate for women to do. Uh, women were also hired by the US Post Office. Some of them were hired as postmistresses. Women were also hired in the War Department, the Interior Department, and after March of 1865, in the Freedmen's Bureau. Now, I already mentioned that the type of work that was available depended on class. And so here we see that the government girls were overwhelmingly middle-class women. Overwhelmingly middle-class women. These aren't working class. These aren't poor women. These are women that are expected to work for maybe a year, and that's it, and then they'll go back to their homes. Still, employing women was very controversial. There was the perception, shouldn't come as a surprise to you, that this type of work would be unladylike for women. Critics were worried that if men and women worked in the same offices, that could lead to a moral <laughs> crisis. All of this was a complete breakdown of the ideology of separate spheres that we've talked so much about. Congress was even so uh, upset about this that it uh, started an investigation into the Treasury Department during these years. Despite all of this, women continued to work in the government even after 1865. Uh, people expected that they would go home after the war, that when men returned from war, that the women would simply return to their homes. But that was not the case for many of these women. Many stay on in the government. They will find new jobs in the pension office, especially after the war as the number of pensions increases. So we see women proliferating in the federal government after or during and after the war. What about working class women? Well, we've already talked about the fact that women had worked in manufacturing since the earliest days of the Industrial Revolution. We've already spent time talking about the Lowell girls, for example. But during the war, with men away, women were needed, needed in the factories. And so during the course of the war, about one quarter of all manufacturing jobs were held by women. So they worked in factories. They worked as seamstresses, sewing uniforms, shoes, blankets, haversacks, tents. But some of the work they did was a little more dangerous because women were hired uh, by uh, uh, arsenals to make cartridges. This wor work could be very dangerous, as was the case in Washington, D.C. More than 100 women were hired in Washington in the largest federal arsenal 
where they made cartridges for small firearms. But in June of 1864, thousands of those cartridges that had been packed with powder exploded. And when they exploded, they, they caught the dresses and skirts of many of these women, their petticoats on fire. They burst into flames. And so 21 young women were killed during this. Uh, many others were burned, severely burned, blinded, or maimed to death. So very dangerous work. What about other political outlets for women during the war? We've already spent time talking about how abolitionism gave women an opportunity to go on the lecture circuit. We've talked about the Grimke sisters. And we also talked about young Anna Dickinson, one of the anti-slavery lecturers uh, as, a, as a young teenager. By 1863, though, Anna was unable to support her, her mother and sister. She had been lecturing for the anti-slavery societies, but she still wasn't making quite enough money. But in that year, in the, the summer of 1863, Republicans in New Hampshire approached her and asked if she would be willing to speak on behalf of the Republican Party. She would be a stump speaker for the Republican Party. She does this. She goes out, she gives 20 lectures throughout the state of New Hampshire, and she's given a, a fair share of the credit when Republicans win uh, during the, the fall election. Well, as other states hear about her success, she's invited to speak at those as well. She helped Republicans in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and New York as well. She was nationally acclaimed the Joan of Arc of the Union cause. And because of her success with the Republican Party in 1863, she was invited to speak before Congress. She was the first woman ever to do so. Uh, President Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd, were in the audience that night. And she didn't have very kind things to say about the president. But after he left, he acclaimed that Dickinson was one of the greatest speakers that he had ever heard. Again, a true political role. She's uh, speaking on behalf of the Republican Party. This is way more partisan than anything that we've seen up until this point. Okay, so that's northern women on the home front. What if we shift our gaze southward? Look at southern women, Confederate women in particular. Now, I want you to keep in mind that for both white and black southern women, for both free and enslaved southern women, the fact that most of the war most of the battles takes place in the South made a tremendous difference. We'll come back and talk about African-American women in just a minute. But for the most part, in the next little bit, we're going to be talking about white women and Confederate women in particular. Keep in mind, though, that there were certainly pockets of unionism throughout the South in Tennessee, eastern Tennessee, portions of North Carolina and Arkansas. So not all white women in the South supported the Confederacy. That's an important distinction to keep in mind. Regardless of whether they supported the Union or Confederacy, for them the war was in many ways a personal violation. You have armies marching across your, your farms, marching through your towns. The war was also um, an incredibly lonely prospect for many women. These women, just like their northern counterparts, are dealing with the fact that their husbands and sons and brothers are off fighting war, 
But if you're a woman on the southern home front, you also have to deal with the fact that you have contending armies fighting around you. There are shortages of food, shortages of supplies as the blockade becomes tighter and tighter. The transportation networks break down throughout the South. So let's look at some of the ways first in which Confederate women, Southern white women, experienced the war in a manner that was somewhat similar to their northern counterparts. And we'll start with those ladies' aid societies, those benevolent associations. As I've already mentioned, there are about 20,000 of these associations, both north and south. Unlike in the north, though, there's no equivalent of the United uh, States Sanitary Commission. There's no umbrella organization in the south. There's no group that will, will serve to, to knit, to bind all of these organizations together. Instead, these are independent, local organizations. Just about every community in the South had them. Larger cities, such as Richmond, Virginia, or Charleston, South Carolina, would have had several of these associations. And because, in many ways, manufacturing was not to the same extent that it was in the North, Many women in these ladies' aid societies aren't just sending in food and doing things of that nature, as was the case in the North, but they're literally sewing flags, sewing uh, garments for soldiers. I'll give you the example of the Petersburg, Virginia Ladies' Association. By January of 1862, the women reported that they had provided 1,789 coats, 2,195 pairs of pants, 1,400 shirts, 493 pairs of drawers, 1,100 cartridge boxes, 66 beds, 10 overcoats, and the list goes on and on. And this is simply one city's ladies' aid society. So they're busy doing this type of work. Again, no national system to coordinate all of these efforts. They're all going to take, take place at the local level. So benevolent societies in both the North and the South, but there are some differences there. What about government work, employment? Overall, the Confederacy hired fewer women than the North, and perhaps a bit more slowly, but they did hire a significant number of women. In the Confederacy, women were also hired in the Treasury Department. Again, these are middle-class women. They were hired for about $500 a year, and they were expected to work for one year and then go back home. Just like their northern counterparts, they'd spend their days signing certificates, signing bonds, and other Confederate currency. What about working class women? Some of the same things. Again, not the same numbers of women in the Confederacy. But here, too, you have women working at the arsenals. Same sorts of accidents that take place. Major accident in Richmond, Virginia in March of 1863 where cartridges exploded. In this case, 69 women were, were injured and 34 killed. So again, a lot of similarities in the experiences. What about the political outlets for women during the war? Well, next week we'll come back and talk about the ways in which Southern white women acted in a political fashion after the war. But it suffice to say that no woman dared behave the way Anna Dickinson did in the North. Remember that women's rights was intimately tied to the abolitionist movement. It was an outgrowth of the abolitionist movement. 
And that would not have gone over well in the Confederacy for women to have been involved in, in such outspoken partisan politics in that way. Well, what about on the home front? I want you to keep in mind, especially as you're reading Jackie Campbell's book, uh, When Sherman Marched North from the Sea for Thursday, you should keep in mind that in the South, in many ways it was impossible to separate, to distinguish the home front from the battlefront, because so many battles are taking place, the majority of battles are taking place in the South. It's impossible to, to divide. And one of the key things in the South is slaveholding. Slaveholding, of course, differentiates the experience of Southern women, Southern slaveholding women, from their northern counterparts. If you were to pick up a diary of a Confederate woman or a collection of letters that she left, I guarantee you that you would find her complaining, would find her just absolutely exasperated about trying to run a plantation and manage slaves without uh, the, the men at home. Southern white women complained time and time again about how difficult it was to maintain discipline, how difficult it was to compel slaves to labor when so many of the, the white men in the South had gone off to fight. I'll give you a few quotes that are representative of this. A woman named Laura Lee from Winchester, Virginia felt shocked and distressed when Evan, a family slave, left with the Union Army. I thought if there was one who would be faithful, it would be Evan, she remarked. And she was particularly annoyed, she wrote in her diary, to be left with only two slaves for all the household labor. So she's going to have to pitch in and do some of the work herself. Another woman, Betty Mari, of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The Negroes are going off in great numbers and beginning to be very impertinent, she remarked. This was the least of her worries, though. I am afraid of the lawless Yankee soldiers, she wrote, but that is nothing to my fear of the Negroes if they should rise against us. Famous diarist Mary Chestnut would tell the story of her cousin, Betsy Witherspoon, who, it was said, had been smothered to death by her own slaves. Now, we've talked about the fact that one of the greatest fears in the White South was the slave rebellion. In 1859, John Brown's raid had ignited these passions, these fears even more. And during the Civil War, this is a palpable fear of Southern white women, of slaveholding women. They are absolutely scared to death about this. And this fear, combined with the hardship of having their husbands and sons and brothers off at war, led them to act in a way that was unknown even to their northern counterparts. That is, Confederate women began writing directly to Confederate government officials. They began writing to the War Department, sending letters to President Jefferson Davis, sending petitions. So here they are acting in a political way. They may not be speaking to Congress the way Anna Dickinson is, but they're acting in a political way. They're writing demanding that things that had previously been private matters be taken care of by the government. They demanded the safe, the, uh, safe return of their loved ones, 
A Georgia woman wrote to President Jefferson Davis, I can't manage a farm well enough to make a support. Another woman was writing to the Confederate government asking for her husband to be sent home. If you don't send him home, I am bound to lose my crop and come to suffer. So they're explicitly writing to the Confederate government, asking the government to help them. Again, this is something that never would have happened prior to the war, but hardships and fear lead them down this road. Some women did more than simply write letters. Some of them took to the streets and what have become known as the bread riots. Riots demanding that the, that the excuse me, Confederate government turn over provisions. This happens in Richmond in 1863. Women know about a storehouse of bread, but other goods as well. And they demand that the government turn it over to them. They say they're, they're starving. They need this. Richmond's not the only case. There's also bread riots that break out in Petersburg, Virginia, Mobile, Alabama, Columbia, South Carolina, Savannah. <coughs> Happens throughout the South. Another way in which Southern women's experience were certainly different than their Northern counterparts is that Southern white women faced threats from both armies. Even a friendly army, even the Confederate army, staying near your farm for some time could be disastrous. Ruining crops, taking your food, dismantling fences to use for fortifications or for firewood. I'll read you a quote from a newspaper in January of 1865 describing the land around Petersburg, Virginia, where Grant's army had been for the previous eight months. Those who saw these lands when they first became the theater of active operations would now have difficulty in recognizing a single field. The houses are nearly all still remaining, but every other trace of the old inhabitants has disappeared. A large portion of the section we occupy was densely wooded with pine when we came. It's now become a question of whether there's wood enough in the army lines to last much longer, so nearly have the forests disappeared. And not an iota of this destruction is to be the work of wantonness. It is the inevitable result of the army remaining in the same camps for a few weeks. Fences are gone generally from the first hour of occupation, as they are the way of evolutions of troops, and the battle strips uh, them as uh, completely from the face the battle the battle strips them as completely from the face of the country as though they had never been. The forests are consumed only because the army must have wood to burn and timber to build quarters. So literally, whole forests are wiped out, decimates the, lands, the landscape. Another thing that would happen if you happen to have a, a larger home in a vicinity would be that even a friendly army, even a Confederate army, could turn your home into an army headquarters or into a field hospital. And if you were unlucky enough to have your home turned into a field hospital, all sorts of horrific things could happen to your home. Betty Mari, we've already heard from in Fredericksburg, described how after the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862, when she returned to her home, she found that it had been used as a hospital. And she said that every vessel in the house, even the vegetable dishes, had been used to collect blood during surgeries. That there were piles of gore 
on the floor of her dining room and that just outside the kitchen door, a Yankee had been buried. So homes absolutely decimated. If you ever get a chance to go to Franklin, Tennessee, to the Carton House, if you make it up to the, the second floor of the house, you'll see next to the windows uh, where they, had, they would take doors off and they would use sawhorses and set up uh, surgery tables, in essence. And they would be next to the windows. And you can still see the stains of blood on the floor where they would perform amputations. And they would do it next to the window so they could simply throw the, the limbs out the window. So all of this, even a friendly army, could have devastating effects. Then there was the irregular cavalry or guerrillas, especially the case in places like Missouri. All of this could threaten women on the home front as much as the enemy, as much as enemy troops. Some southern white women wanted to get away from this. They became refugees. They left areas that were under siege, under attack. Now, in many of these instances, these were uh, wealthier slaveholding families who are trying to get their slaves away from Union lines. They know that as soon as the Union army marches into any given area, slaves are likely to join up with the army. And so we find many slaveholders that are rushing to, to move their property, move their slaves to Texas to protect them. So in many instances, these refugees are upper-class families that had the means to move. Many working class families simply couldn't. On the other hand, people also poured into cities. Cities like Richmond, Richmond, Virginia, which was the capital of the Confederacy, went from a population of 40,000 in 1850 to 100,000 during the war. Again, largely because of the influx of refugees coming into the city. What about the impact on families. It's an image of Confederate dead from Gettysburg. Just as a side note, anytime you see images of uh, dead soldiers, especially at Gettysburg, they are almost always Confederate soldiers. The Union soldiers had been buried by the time the photographers got there to take pictures. Moreover, Union, the photographers really want to take pictures of the Confederate dead, not, not their own dead. In the South, though, the the war extracts a higher toll on white Southern families than on Northern families. Now, I don't mean to dismiss what happens to Northern families, but in the South, a quarter, 25% of all military-age men, white men, between the ages of 18 and 55, were killed during service. Another quarter were permanently maimed meaning that they lost an arm, a leg, a jaw, a hand, two legs during the war. By 1870, there were 25,000 more women in North Carolina than there were men. We've talked a lot about sex ratios. We talked about that when we talked about the Chesapeake in the 1600s. This will be another issue in the aftermath of the Civil War. So we have women who are now presiding over farms, running the family business. Remarriage, which had traditionally been an option for widows, is increasingly less likely to be an option. So spinsterhood 
and widowhood becomes more acceptable in the aftermath. Well, what about for slave women or African-American women? For slave women, we know that many of them made their ways to Union lines. As soon as the Union army marched through a given area, they, along with their families, would attach themselves to the Union army. Again, you'll be reading about this in Campbell. For those who remained on the plantation, life could become even more dangerous. Union soldiers were often unpredictable, in many cases unsympathetic, to African-Americans whom they blamed for starting the war. They knew the war was over slavery. And there are many Union soldiers who were angered by this. When hard war started in 1864, some of it had gone on before, but when Sherman is, is marching with his path of destruction, if his soldiers burned down barns, then they were depleting the food sources of both whites and blacks on the plantation left as many slaves and freed African-Americans homeless as they did white people. Black women also feared Union soldiers as much as they did Confederate soldiers in some instances. We know about an instant at, instant at, instance at Fort Monroe in Virginia where two Union soldiers seized the father and son-in-law of a black woman held them down while two other Union soldiers raped her. If they feared Union soldiers, they often feared Confederate soldiers even more. Then there were certainly the instances in which uh, slave women whose husbands or brothers or sons had run off to join the Union Army faced retaliation from the masters if they stayed on the plantation. They're especially vulnerable. In the end, though, we know that slave women were huge winners. Not that life was easy, but by the end of the war, of course, emancipation had come. The war would mean freedom. The war would mean the recognition of legally sanctioned, le legally recognized marriages, which had not been the case, of course, under slavery. We'll talk more about all of this next week. For now, let's leave the home front and move to the battlefront. And here we'll find perhaps more women than you thought. We'll start with nursing, because nursing certainly offered an outlet for women during the war. Louisa May Alcott, a typical example of a northern woman uh, she was loyal to the Union. She wondered how she could do her part. She couldn't enlist and go off to fight, so how could she show that she was devoted to the Union? Well, like 9,000 other Northern women, 9,000 other Northern women, she volunteered as a nurse. She worked in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. She lasted only about six weeks before she became ill and had to go home. But the war had been a very formative period in her life. Of course, it would lead her to write hospital sketches and eventually to write Little Women. Now, prior to the war, nursing had been a male profession. 
We're now conditioned to think of nursing as a woman's job. It's certainly been feminized. But prior to the Civil War, it was absolutely a male profession, and women had great difficulty in getting into the field. But again, the war marks a turning point. It's a watershed. People were worried about the propriety of women taking care of strangers' bodies. It's one thing to take care of your husbands and sons. It's another to be bathing the bodies of strangers. They were worried about how women would react to blood, to excrement. Think back to the lectures that we've had on women in medicine during these years. Clara Barton, who would later go on to found the American Red Cross in 1881, served as a nurse. She was one of the first to treat wounded on the front lines. And her response to critics who wondered whether or not women could handle it was that tending to wounded and sick men was, quote, no more rough and unseemly for a woman than fighting was rough and unseemly for men. She thought it was simply natural that this is something that women would do. The key figure in the North, though, was Dorothea Dix. Now, prior to the war, Dix had worked uh, reforming the nation's mental institutions. But in 1861, she was appointed superintendent of nursing in the North. And she recognized the concern. She recognized why people were worried about women going into this field. She was concerned about pretty young women tending to the bodies of young men. And so she stipulated, she had some very strict guidelines about who could serve as one of her nurses. She said, no woman under 30 need apply. All nurses are required to be plain-looking women. Their dresses must be brown or black with no bows, no curls, no jewelry, no hoops. All of those things would get in the way of tending to soldiers. You can imagine why they were to wear black or brown. It wasn't simply about mourning, but there's stories that some nurses would tell of the their dresses soaking up the blood and other excrements from floors. And one woman talked about how she would, every so many hours, she'd have to wring out her dress because it would become filled with blood. So these are practical measures, in part, that Dorothea Dix uh, sets forward. Nurses certainly faced unsanitary conditions. Just mentioned the, the dresses. They faced disease, dysentery, Typhoid, all of these were problematic. Alcott, I've already mentioned, was sent home because she became ill. Nursing could also be boring and tedious. There were no nursing schools. There'd be nursing schools after the war, and 1870s would be the first. So these women aren't trained as such. They're doing things like uh, tending to bedpans, writing letters for soldiers. That's one thing they did quite often, writing letters home for soldiers. Uh, they would... Uh, do a lot of boring and tedious work. Uh, some of it on the front lines, some of it in hospitals in places like Washington. Most of these women, most of these northern nurses, were middle-class women. <clears throat> middle-class women who had not worked outside the home prior to the war. Many of them said that they had been inspired by Florence Nightingale. Her book about the Crimean War had been published in 1860, and many of these women had read it and were inspired 
to, to go into nursing because of this. About a half of them left a child behind to go off and tend to sick and wounded soldiers. Some of them were widowed. Some of them wanted to be near their spouse. Others were simply looking for excitement, wanted to be part of the war effort, as was the case with Alcott. In terms of pay, in 1862, the US Congress finally stipulated or authorized that nurses could be paid 40 cents a day plus any other costs that they would have. But there were a good many of these nurses who worked without pay the entire war, insisting that they were volunteering to fight the Union cause, and they would do it simply as volunteers. They didn't want to be paid. So one woman doctor during the war, Mary Walker, only woman to receive a commission as a US Army surgeon, she angered and shocked a lot of people because she wore men's clothing. She said it was much more practical to wear men's clothing than to wear dresses. Uh, she was called a mad woman for some of her behaviors, but apparently she was pretty effective. Her death rates were quite low compared to many of the male surgeons. After the war, she was awarded the Medal of Honor, but it was revoked in 1917 when the US government decided that only soldiers could receive the Medal of Honor. What about in the South? When the South, only about 1,000 women served officially as nurses. This is an image of Phoebe Pember, Phoebe Pember Yates, who would work at the Shimborazo Hospital in Richmond, Virginia. Only about 1,000 Confederate women served as nurses, largely because many Confederate hospitals used slave labor so they didn't need white women to serve as nurses the same way that the Union uh, cause did. But if only a 1,000 Confederate women served officially as nurses, thousands upon others served unofficially as nurses. And here's the famous scene of Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind when she goes to the train station. She's going to look for the doctor because Melanie needs him to deliver the baby. And Scarlett shows up there, and there's these thousands of soldiers. So she has to act as a nurse on an ad hoc basis. Now, we know Scarlett wasn't too thrilled about the prospect of acting as a nurse. But we also know that near the battle lines, thousands of women in the South uh, acted on an impromptu basis, taking soldiers into their homes, serving unofficially as nurses during the course of the war. So except for places like Gettysburg or Antietam, this isn't the case in the North. There simply isn't the need because the war doesn't occur there, because the battles are primarily in the South. But overall, again, the war marks a tremendous turning point, a watershed for women in the profession of nursing. As I've already mentioned, after the war, by the 1870s, nursing schools will be set up around the country becomes a legitimate profession for women, even if serving as doctors uh, was a little more complicated. What about soldiers? Well, there were some women who did enlist and serve as soldiers, women such as Major Pauline Cushman or Frances Claylin, who would disguise herself. We know of at least 400 women in the North. Those are women that we know of 
who disguised themselves and served as soldiers. Uh, just as we talked about during the Revolutionary War, myriad of reasons why they might have done so, ranging from those who were unmarried and patriotic, trying to, to do their service, to those who simply wanted to be close to their husbands. Now it appears that Northern women were twice as likely as their Confederate counterparts to join the army. If you're in the North, the war might seem a little more far off and romantic than if you're living in the Confederacy and it's happening close by. Just like during the American Revolution, women tended to be found out for one of two reasons, either because they were wounded and during medical treatment they were discovered, or because they became pregnant. But many of these women were widely known within their regiments, within the smaller units. Their units would keep their secrets. Comrades knew who they were and agreed to remain silent on the issue. Women also served as spies. Some of the more famous ones for the Confederacy, Rose O'Neill Greenhow, Belle Boyd. Belle Boyd in particular, she liked to, to talk about. She went on a lecturing circuit after the war, so many of her exploits are a little exaggerated. It was a way for her to make money after the war telling her stories. The most famous Union spy was Elizabeth Van Loo a spy for the Union living in the capital of the Confederacy. And after the war, she would be rewarded for her service by the President of the United States. She would be made postmistress of Richmond, Virginia. Also, just like we talked about during the American Revolution, women served as camp followers. So this included women who served as laundresses, as teamsters, as sutlers, selling items. This was also the case for runaway slaves who would join the Union Army. Now, many of these women who were camp followers were certainly the wives of lower-class men, but there was a significant percentage of officers' wives who showed up at camp. Uh, Confederate General Jubal Early liked to complain about women showing up in camp. In particular, he would go after John Brown Gordon, who he said his wife always seemed to be in camp, and early defended himself. He said that it wasn't that he didn't like women. In fact, I think Gurley did appear to like women. But in fact, he said that having officers' wives in camp fostered a sense of dissatisfaction, that the, the privates, the enlisted men, would be dissatisfied, that they would be upset when they saw the officers' wives there kind of living the lavish lives while they knew their own wives and daughters were back home trying to make ends meet. So Early very much attacked this, but it was quite common, tended to be more common in the Confederacy than behind Union lines for obvious logistical reasons. But Union wives also would join their husbands in camp on occasion. Now just another word about camp followers. We've already said this in regard to the revolution, but just to be clear, these women were not prostitutes, despite uh, the popular image of camp followers as such. Many of these women added a sense of family, added a sense of community during the war to the armies, and they also provided necessary services, like doing laundry, like keeping camp clean. Now, don't get me wrong, there were certainly plenty of prostitutes 
during the war, especially near cities. And there were very high rates of venereal disease in both the Union and Confederate armies. On more than one occasion, both armies would take attempts to keep prostitutes away from soldiers, or in the case of Nashville, trying to regulate prostitution in an effort to, to um, prevent some of the spread of disease. So let's wrap up. Let's talk about the impact of the war on women. Here's a famous image from Harper's Weekly talking about our women in the war. The war did create opportunities for all women, for most women, during the war. Many of these women would carry their experiences in ladies' aid societies, soldiers' aid societies, nursing, into the reform movements after the war. In the North, many of these women would become active in the suffrage movement. Their wartime experiences, especially in organizing and joining these associations, also heightened the nature of women's associations. Many, many more organizations would form after the war, especially in the former Confederacy, where women had not organized to this extent until the war. It's become a jumping-off point for other organizations. In the North, we find that there are more working experiences outside the home. Nursing, we've already talked about. Working for the government became an option. But there would also be an increase in the number of secretaries and clerks, women who served as secretaries and clerks later in the century. By the 1880s, 1890s, some of these same women would, and their daughters would work as department store clerks, as cashiers, or working in corporations. In the South, opportunities were more limited. We do find more Southern white women go into teaching after the Civil War. That had been a male profession for the most part in the South prior to the war, not in the North, but in the South. We also find, though, that in the South, more white women were forced into working in the fields, forced to perform field labor. Conversely, we also know that at least immediately after the war, black women withdrew their labor from the fields. <coughs> they refused to work in the fields. Domestic service, though, would be reserved for black women. <clears throat> the long-term impact of the war on family and marriage still remains unclear. We still need some better studies on this. Uh, it does become clear that there were more spinsters, there were more widows in the aftermath of the war. People more sympathetic to women remaining single. But the war also affected women in more subtle ways, ways that are harder to define. Let me read you a quote from a union nurse, Jenny Fife. I sometimes feel I hardly know myself. What effect this army life is having upon me? We become familiar with sorrow, suffering, even death. It changes us somewhat. It cannot be otherwise. We feel a change some way has passed over us, and that we shall never be just as before, you don't quite understand me. It's hard for anyone 
who's not been in such a place. She can't even put into words what it is that she's experienced. What if we flip the coin? What was the impact of women on the war? Well, this is something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about on Thursday during our discussion. But for now, I want to suggest to you that there's been a great deal of debate about this among historians as to whether or not women supported their respective war efforts. Drew Gilpin Faust, historian of Southern women and now president of Harvard University, argues that women cost the Confederacy the war by ceasing to support the war effort. She said, by writing those letters to Jefferson Davis, by sending those petitions, Confederate women gave up. They undermined the Confederate war effort. They caused a, a decrease in morale. It was women's fault that the Confederacy failed. But she ignores the fact that most literate Southern white women, and most Southern white women by this point were literate, were strong supporters of the Confederacy. And if anything, their interactions with Yankees, with Union <laughs> soldiers, only bolstered their devotion to the Confederacy, only made them more likely to fight to support the cause for independence. So I actually think it's the other way around. I think that women were one of the main supports for the Confederate cause. They were not an interior weakness. They didn't contribute to declining morale. But instead, they were one of the strongest supporters of the Confederate war effort. So just to wrap up, as we always do, keep in mind that there was certainly no universal experience for women during the war. But women North and South, Union and Confederate, black and white, certainly were affected by and affected the American Civil War. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.